Father, we pray that this wouldn't be a wasted time with man's opinions and, uh, Father, untrue things, but instead that you would give grace for your word to shine forth. Father, and that by your spirit you'd use your word in the hearts of your people, and we ask this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by talking about stories. Uh, Since the beginning of time, I mean, if you look in the history of the world, stories have always been a big part of how people interact with one another. And there are all different kinds of stories. There are comedies, there are love stories, there are tragedies, there are romantic comedies, which is a mix of all three of those things. But no matter what kind of stories there are, there's sometimes these kind of common themes that show up in our stories. If you think about a lot of your favorite movies, your favorite books, your favorite stories, two kind of themes that always show up are good and evil, right? Think, think a lot of your favorite movies uh, and think about the good and evil that may show up. Braveheart. Braveheart's a classic movie. A movie that I was rebuked five years ago because I hadn't seen yet. I'm that dude who's always late to see every single movie. Never seen Star Wars before. Don't do that. Don't owe me. <laughs> Hope you're that loud when I'm preaching the gospel. Um, you think about a brave heart. You think about the good guys. You think about Scotland. You think about William Wallace and you're rooting for him. You think about the bad guys, King Edward. You don't want them to win. You think about Chronicles of Narnia. You think about Aslan and the kids. You think about the white witch. She's evil. You want good to triumph over evil. Or even Aladdin. Don't act like you don't know about Aladdin. You have Aladdin and you have Princess Jasmine and then you got the evil Jafar. Even my son watching Shrek. Last night, I mean, any kind of movie you watch or any kind of story you see, there's often this kind of good and evil, and you want the good side to win. So sometimes with that in mind, the way that we've always thought about stories, when we then come to the story of the gospel of Jesus, sometimes we expect that there is this exact same kind of battle between good and evil. And we watch those movies and we read those stories, you're left in suspense during the entire story wondering, oh, who's going to actually win? Is it good or is it evil? And so then when we begin to think about the world and look at the Gospels, we imagine that there's this exact same kind of battle between good and evil where you're not really sure who's going to win. Is God going to win? The good guy? Or is Satan going to win? A demon's going to win? Is evil going to win? The question that people often ask. You know, is Jesus just another agent of good that we hope wins? Is he just another character in the story? Is he just the Prince Charming of of this story? I think what we're going to see clearly in this passage is that Jesus is no ordinary good guy. He's not a regular main character in a story. He is the Lord of all things. And when it comes, anyone comes face to face with the Lord, the truth is his power and authority demands obedience. There is no suspense in the story of the Gospels. There's no suspense in the story of the world. Jesus will win. No question about that. And and here's why it matters, I mean, as we look through this passage. Because whether or not we see Jesus as just a good guy who's going to try to win, or as we see him as the victor who's already won the battle, who's already been in control, that changes the way we walk through life. Right When difficult things come up, and we'll see difficult things come up in this passage, are you going to look to Jesus like, Lord, I don't know if you can do this, but maybe you could? Or are you going to look to Jesus as the victor? The way you respond in situations depends on how you see Jesus. 
So we're going to look at that today in the Gospel of Mark. And and in the Gospel of Mark, we see lots of opportunities for Jesus to interact with all kinds of evils. It's already happened in the Gospel. He's already interacted with demons. He's already interacted with some false teaching. In the entire book, we see him also interact with death and, and sickness. He's already done some healings. And we get a little snapshot of all of those things here in this passage. You know, what we looked at last week, Jesus was teaching in parables and explaining those parables to his disciples. And this text picks up uh, where we left off. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to look at three kind of descriptions of Jesus in these three scenes. And as we look at these three scenes, these three stories, the pattern is there's going to be this terrible tragedy where everything looks hopeless. Then you're going to see Jesus speak into that situation and fix it. And then we're going to see the way that the people around respond in each of these situations. And we'll see this pattern, and Jesus is going to reveal himself. And at the end of it, it's going to be clear that the power and authority of Jesus demand obedience. Okay? Let's look at the first thing we see about Jesus. And I'll read the text in each little scene. First thing we see is that Jesus is Lord of storms. Jesus is Lord of storms. Here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. This is what God's word says. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That's Jesus speaking to the disciples. And leaving the crowd, they took uh, took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So right here where we are in this passage, we're picking up after a long day of teaching, right? Jesus has been teaching through all these things, and now it's evening. Jesus gets tired too, right? So Jesus, maybe even just needing a break from all of these crowds, says, hey, let's let's go to the other side of the sea. And we even see that his popularity, I mean, it says other boats were with him. I mean, people were following him wherever he went. He had lots of fans. And it's during this trip on the Sea of Galilee that things go wrong. There's a terrible storm. That's, that's the tragedy. That's the hopeless part of this scene. So I, I just want you to try to imagine this for a moment. It's hard for us to imagine because we're not used to traveling on boats, I don't think. So as he crosses the sea, him and the disciples are on this small little boat. Right? And it's not an ordinary storm. The disciples wouldn't have been scared. They, so many of them were fishermen. It's a serious storm. The text says a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat, and the boat was filling. It's not just a little bit of rocky water. This is crazy water beating up against the side of the boat. The boat is getting filled up, so they're afraid because they're thinking this is the end. I wonder if you've ever had a near-death experience, or at least just at least felt like it was a near-death experience. That beating starts to happen in your chest, right? You feel that strange uh, feeling in your stomach. Your, your thoughts get scattered. Maybe you got into a car accident. Or maybe you're on a flight and the, and the flight drops and there's turbulence. I remember um, 
when I was living in D.C., I had what I thought was going to be a near-death experience when me and my wife were upstairs, and I just heard the door open and close. So I'm like, both of us are right here. So I was like, all right, it's about to go down. I'm just about to go down and fight to the death with somebody. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I walked downstairs. It was really our friend who had a key who didn't ask us before they came, and their key was soon revoked. But I thought it was a near-death experience. And I like to say I was ready to fight for my family. We'll talk about that another time. But I thought it was. And so you get that feeling, that fear. Or or I think about maybe when I was a kid and I grew up in Texas, there were all these tornadoes. Every now and then there was tornado season every year, which sounds frightening. And there would be this crazy storm. We'd be in the bathtub in a room with, with no windows. But here the disciples are in a crazy kind of storm, but they're not in a house under shelter. They're on a boat. And so in their minds, it's all over. And where was Jesus, their leader? He was knocked out. Pastor says he was in a stern to sleep on the cushion. The stern is just the back of the boat. And so you understand why this is strange to him, strange to the disciples, almost like if uh, your house is on fire and your roommates are sleeping through it. He'd be like, you just, you just wanna, this is, you want to nap right now? I have all the times when naps need to happen, you want to you wanna nap right now? Especially if your roommate was a, you know, a miracle worker, right? You would think, well, hey, you want to get up and, and do something? But it seems clear they didn't really know what he could do, right? They woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And then he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus responds to the tragedy this way. By speaking words, he, he doesn't fix the situation with his expert boating skills. Right? That's not how he does it. He doesn't just start to try to throw water out of the boat. Jesus speaks words. That is not how you would ever expect anybody to respond to to a storm. Text says he rebuked the wind, which is an interesting word because the sense of that word is uh, to correct, to express disapproval, to to reprove, the kind of thing a parent says to a child. Right? This is like when people are out in public with their kids and their kids start running around. They're like, sit your tail down. Nobody tell you to get up. Right? That's basically what Jesus does, but to the winds and the waves. Right? I could say that to somebody else's kid. They'd be like, I don't know you, sir. I'm going to keep running around. But the reason they listen is because it's their father. And so the disciples on this boat could have said the exact same words to the storm. They could have not woke Jesus up and just said, peace be still. Nothing would have happened. Absolutely nothing would have happened. The power of what Jesus says is not in just the words themselves. The power of the statement that Jesus made comes from the person who's speaking those words. Right? In the same way I have no authority over somebody else's kid, those disciples had no authority over the winds and the waves, but Jesus did. Jesus was not just a Jewish rabbi to these winds and waves. They knew who he was. He was their creator. They know that Jesus spoke them into existence, and they belonged to him. Jesus is God. In Psalm 148, it says, Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. The winds and the waves understand they were created to fulfill his word, to do his bidding. And so when their creator, when their boss shows up and tells them to sit down, rebukes him, they obey. When the creator speaks, the creation listens. It's what his authority demands. The winds and the waves were not going to disobey Jesus. And so then when he says that, all of a sudden it's like nothing happened, right? This is probably the worst storm these dudes had ever seen. And all of a sudden it's calm all around them. And Jesus talks to him. He said, 
why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus basically questions them based on the way that they just responded by questioning whether or not Jesus actually cared. They were afraid and doubting. When you were a kid, did you ever, like, if you had siblings, you and all your siblings get in trouble and it's just real tense in the room? I'm wondering if this is how they felt. Is Jesus is like, you know, why are you afraid? I mean, do, do you still not believe? Why would he ask, have you still no faith? I don't think he would have said the exact same thing if there were strangers in the boat with him. These are his disciples. These are the guys who've been with him. They've seen his authoritative teaching. They've already seen his miracles. They've seen his healings. They've seen him cast demons out. If anyone should trust Jesus to take care of a storm, it should be them. They're the ones who've seen his power most clearly. Right? And why would they think he was powerless against this sea? Doesn't this seem crazy? But how often have we done the exact same thing when new situations pop up in our lives and we act like God can't handle them? Right? When it feels like maybe God's not doing anything about it. Similar to how the disciples felt. And we feel like asking that same question, like, God, don't you care about what I'm going through? Right? It feels like God is sleeping on us. And that kind of question to God, like, God, do you care about me, can quickly go from letting the Lord know how you feel to putting his character into question. His disciples here are wondering, does he even care? And here's the truth. No matter what kind of stuff gets thrown at us, we may forget about God. We may get bored with God. We may drift from God. But if we're his, God does not get bored with us and he doesn't forget about us. There's no situation you go through where you can ask, where it's a legitimate question to say, oh, I wonder if God cares. He know he cares. And his track record has shown us over and over and over again. I mean, this is why when we come together, we sing these songs about how awesome God is, about the stuff that God has done. This is why Mo stands up here and talks about the gospel and the cross, because like the disciples, we forget about the track record of Jesus and we don't trust him. I wonder if Jesus was with you last week, how many times he would have asked you that same question. I mean, think about the last time you went through something hard. How often would Jesus have said, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? As if to look at your situation and say, do you not think I can handle that? Right? Do you not know who I am? Verse 41 says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Right afterwards, they're obviously in awe of what Jesus has done, and they ask a very important question in this passage, saying, hey, who is this guy? This is why Jesus does miracles, so that people will know who he is. He's showing off his power. Often when we read the Gospels, we assume the disciples who are his followers just understand everything all the time. When you read the Gospels, especially Mark, it's very clear they don't always get it, right? They don't always get it. So they're like, mm, maybe he's... Something bigger than we thought he was. And if you're here today and you're not a, a Christian or you're not really sure, don't be embarrassed to ask that same question. Don't be embarrassed to look at what Jesus has done and to kind of re-ask yourself, is he who I thought he was? That's the most important question you can ever ask. Who is Jesus? The disciples are slowly starting to get it. As believers, though, we should marvel at the things that God has done the way that they did, and it should obviously help our, our, our estimation of God to continue to grow. The disciples wonder who he is, and in the next scene, we get a clearer picture of that. And we see the power and authority of Jesus demands obedience. Jesus is Lord of the storms. Number two, Jesus is Lord of demons. Jesus is Lord of demons. 
Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. They, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So they've, they've gotten to their destination, where they were headed. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. But he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So here again in the second scene, we have a, another tragedy. The tragedy is this man who's demon-possessed. He lived among the tombs, among the dead, basically in, in a graveyard. He had superhuman strength, so much that no one could restrain him. Anytime somebody tried to put handcuffs or shackles on him, he, he broke them, right? And he was always screaming. He was crying. He was, he was cutting himself. This was a disturbed man. And, and it says he has an unclean spirit, which just means a, a demon. And so it's hard for us to imagine, you know, demonic torment in our day, because we assume nothing supernatural ever happens. But what would you do if you saw this man? Say you were driving home from church today. You see a dude who's living in a graveyard. He's screaming in pain. He's clearly hurting himself. I bet a lot of people have different responses. They maybe laugh at him, right? Or maybe they get it on their cell phone, or maybe they just call some kind of authority to snatch him up. I mean, as a culture, we'd want to institutionalize him because he's a danger to himself. He's a danger to other people. He's not in his right mind. He needs help. And the people here in the country of the garrisons, they didn't know what to do with him either. Right? They were probably scared out of their minds. I mean, often even in our culture, we don't know what to do with mentally ill people. So like them, you know, we try to find ways to subdue them. We just have more advanced ways of doing that. Psych wards and padded walls and medications. But here's the thing. This text doesn't say this was a guy who just had some mental issues. It says he was tormented by demons. The truth is this dude doesn't like living like this. He's being oppressed. Can you imagine the terror of, of being captured by somebody, of being kidnapped, being tied up, handcuffed? That's a scary thing. It's even more scary if those captors dwelled inside of you. I mean, can you imagine the torment that this man is in? We shouldn't be deceived and imagine that demons are not real. In this case, these demons opposing God, they're trying to dehumanize this man. They're trying to destroy the image of God in this man. They want to hinder God's purposes. And the tragic thing is nobody has been able to help him at all. Right? Nobody's been able to do anything. But when he sees Jesus in the distance, it doesn't say he walked towards him. It says he ran. It didn't say he wanted to talk to him. It says he fell down before him. 
And, and this is where the passage gets a little tricky because these demons clearly have some kind of control over this man in a serious way. You can tell by the way he's speaking. But these demons want to get away from Jesus. So it seems like in the passage, it's the man himself who sees an opportunity maybe to be delivered. He thinks nobody could do anything for me. But I think this man off in the distance, I think he can do something about this. And he runs and he throws himself at his feet. And as soon as the man falls before Jesus, he cries out. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Because Jesus was saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. That's interesting. We've already established demons, right? They're these spiritual forces against God. Now, if it's these demons speaking through this man, if this was some story of just good and evil, equal forces battling each other, this is not what those demons would say. They're saying basically like, oh, no, what are you doing here, Jesus? We had this on lock. Why is Jesus showing up? This would be like if there was a war and there was another country we were at war with and they captured some of our soldiers, prisoners of war. And they, and they uh, had, had a building just armed, soldiers and soldiers all around it. And a couple U.S. soldiers show up and they say, oh, United States, what are you doing here? Please don't mess with us, United States. That's not how war happens unless there's some different dynamics at play. This is not an average war. These are not equal uh, opponents. These are demons recognizing their authority has showed up. So in this encounter, this conversation, we see a few things that uh, are clear from this uh, interaction between the demons and Jesus. One thing we see is they know who he is. The demons don't have to ask who this is standing before him. As soon as they see him, they recognize he's the son of the most high God. They don't just call him by name, Jesus. They know his status. This is a huge moment in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Peter uh, points out who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, hey, who, who do men say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the son of the most high God. And this is exactly what, what the demons say here. They, they're proclaiming the truth of God, and they actually have more clear insight into eternal things than other people around, the townspeople, maybe even the disciples at this point, which very quickly shows us something a little scary, that you can know the truth about God and still rebel against him. Now, you can say true things. Good for you. Demons can as well. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Your knowledge of God hasn't actually led to this obedience that the authority and power of Jesus demands. You don't believe in Jesus. You just know some facts. Facts don't save you. Jesus does. When you put your faith in Jesus, that's when we're saved, not when you just know some facts. The demons know who he is. Not only that, the demons know that he's going to oppose them. Right? They're saying, what do you have to do with me? They know Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to make all things new, that Jesus came to defeat evil, and they they don't like that. They know they're going to be destroyed and that Jesus will reign. They know that Jesus is more powerful than them. When he says, what's your name? They says, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was about five to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Right, so they're saying there are a lot of us, and they know that Jesus is stronger than them. We're probably talking about thousands of demons, yet they fear him. There's no reason to fear your enemy if you're stronger than them, but they know that Jesus is stronger. You ever seen dudes who, wanna, who say they want to fight, and they talk a big game, and they like circle around for like 30 minutes? That's what people do 
when they don't know if they can win a fight. You know, you can win a fight, you jump in a fight. If you're not sure, you try to stall and avoid. This is what the demons are doing here. They don't want it with Jesus. They know who he is. What we see here is a weak, defeated enemy that's begging for mercy, saying, don't hurt me. Not only that, they know that he's their authority. They don't tell Jesus what they're going to do. They ask permission. You don't ask permission from your equal. You ask permission of your authority figures. All throughout Scripture, evil forces have to get God's permission in order to do anything. You know the story of Job, where Satan wants to do things, and he has to... uh, Get permission from God. God allows him to tempt and to test and to even hurt Job. But he can't go further than God allows him. They need God's permission. Can you imagine what our world would be like if Jesus didn't uh, restrain evil at all? If he let demons do whatever they wanted to? If he let them have their way? I imagine all of us may be tormented like this man is, but God doesn't allow that. And so this means we shouldn't get discouraged when we look around our world wondering, can God handle all this evil? Things look like they're getting out of control. A passage like this reminds us that God is never out of control, and all it takes is a single word, and his enemies are defeated. A single word. And so that's what Jesus does. Very strange kind of turn of events where they're saying, hey, don't send us out of the country. Can we go on those pigs? Jesus permits them, sends them into the pigs, and they run off the cliff, and the pigs die. 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. I mean, if you imagine this in your mind. I mean, imagine watching this crazy scene. Verse 14, response to the people around. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So everyone who witnesses the story, they run away like, I got to tell people what just happened. This was an odd day, it would have said, and everybody began to tweet about it, right? They, they wanted everybody to know that I, I've just seen something incredible. And so when everybody's like, oh, I got to see this, and they go and they look. This is dude that they know to be disturbed and self-harming and apparently naked, clothed, and in his right mind. And they're afraid. So they've just seen this miraculous, powerful act. And they just respond with fear. They don't submit to Jesus. They don't say, I want you to be my Lord. They don't want anything to do with him. They beg him to leave. Isn't it tragic that they would come face to face With God in the flesh, the very one who came to save them, the very one who came to deliver, the very one who created everything, and yet they beg him to leave. They want nothing to do with him. And that's that's chilling to think about. And I pray that none of us in this room would do the same thing, that we wouldn't have these encounters with Jesus where we see him in his word or where we see his people loving others or where we come to church that we would see God 
and yet want nothing to do with them. There are all kinds of reasons we can see the power of Jesus, but still want nothing to do with him. You know, you can be amazed and even impressed with things Jesus does without actually submitting to him and putting your faith in him and obeying him. You know, some of the people who don't like Jesus marvel at the things that he does, and they're impressed at the things that he does. Again, being impressed with Jesus does not mean you know Jesus. Knowing facts about Jesus does not mean you know Jesus. You have to submit to him. And so the demon-possessed man responds very differently, much more encouraging, right? He's he's deeply grateful. He even tries to become one of Jesus' disciples. He's getting back on the boat, and he's like, Jesus, let me roll with you. And Jesus says, "Mm -mm. I want you to stay, and I want you to tell people what I've done for you and about the mercy that I've had on you. And this man... Because he believes in Jesus after this powerful act, he obeys him. He does what he says, and he begins to go tell everybody what happened. Some refer to this man as the first missionary. He's the first one Jesus sends out to tell about him. Even before he sends the disciples out, he's already sent this man out to tell people about him. Look, I hope that as a church, you know, we're we're a young church. Sometimes we don't like to do stuff that we see an older church do, but I hope we don't sleep on the power of testifying to the things that God has done in our life. You ever been to old churches who have testimony time? Sometimes going for a long time. Anybody can walk up like, I got something, let me say something. Right? Look, it's, it's a good thing to point to the ways God has been merciful to you and to tell other people about it. Let me tell you what's not such a good thing. I, I've, I've heard this happen many times. You know, for instance, I was at an event one time. This lady came up, she said, hey, let me tell you how bad things were. I'm strung out on cocaine, addicted to it, da-da-da, here's how I wrecked my life. And then I stopped doing cocaine. Amen. And then they like did an altar call. And I, and, and I was heartbroken because she didn't actually exalt Jesus at all. She just told us some biographical facts. Thank you. It's good to get to know you better. I'd rather know your Lord. I'd rather know the one who did something about you, so please do. Don't sleep on the, on the uh, power of a testimony. But a true testimony is one that testifies to what God has done in your life, one that exalts the power of Jesus, one that points to Jesus as the deliverer, not one that points to you as someone with the power to get over hard things. You know, that's a nice story. It does nothing for me. I want to know about your Lord, and this is what this man is uh, told to do, and it's what he does. And it's as he does it that the text says, everyone marveled. They got to hear about what Jesus had done. I wonder who in this church is going to dedicate their life to going places to talk about what the Lord has done. I mean, I hope you understand that's what the local church is built on. We are witnesses to what Christ has done. You know what a witness does. They've seen something and they testify, to, testify about it to people who haven't seen it. We've seen the grace of God in an amazing way, and we get the opportunity to testify about it to others, whether that's here or elsewhere. I wonder if you've testified about the goodness and mercy of Jesus recently in your interactions with your neighbors, or in your, your interactions with your coworkers or with your family. The holidays are coming up. Great opportunity to interact with people you don't normally interact with in your family. And to tell them about the goodness and grace of Jesus. We make it a lot harder than it is sometimes. Sometimes an easy inroad is talking about what Jesus has done in your life. It's a good thing to do. I, I encourage you to do it. And, and I hope 
as we think about this particular story, we see something about the compassion of Jesus. That people that uh, human beings are scared of, Jesus is not at all afraid of. People that are outcast to Jesus, that people want nothing to do with, Jesus wants everything to do with them. And Jesus and his compassion heals this man. Even if you drive around our neighborhood, you drive around Joseph Eli, there's some people that may look crazy to you. And the way that we may want to respond is staying as far away from them as possible, which sometimes may be a good thing. But we want the compassion of Jesus. We want to pray that God would give us his compassion. And we don't just want to help people in their behaviors. We want to introduce them to the one that can make them whole. Jesus made this man whole. This is why we proclaim Jesus every single week. I mean, this, this is an amazing story here that, again, shows that the authority of Jesus demands obedience. And the demons did obey when Jesus told them what to do. The townspeople, on the other hand, they didn't submit to Jesus to do what he says. Instead, they begged him to go away. But we see this isn't a regular good versus evil fight. Jesus can shut down evil with the word from his mouth. But there is one thing people assume that cannot be beaten. One quote, of course, says that two things that are sure in life are death and taxes. I think I may hate, may hate taxes more than I hate death. One rapper said this, this is why I be so fresh. I'm trying to beat life because I can't cheat death. Everyone knows death is coming for all of us. Death is indiscriminate. But, of course, we know there is one who can defeat death. Number three, Jesus is Lord of death and disease. A quick note about um, gospel texts. There's nothing in the text that says that all the time, all of these events happened in exactly these orders. The thing that the gospel writers will do is they've seen these things and they've heard these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is they'll organize them in a way that drives home certain points. So Mark, by putting these three stories together, wants to make a point about Jesus' authority over all things. So we've seen his authority over nature. Now we've seen his authority over demons and evil powers. I'm going to see his authority over death and disease. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, right? So Jesus was on this side, the west of the Sea of Galilee, where Jews were. He crosses to this side, heals the demon-possessed man, and then he's crossing back to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him, right? This is where he's been doing ministry, so they know about him. And he was beside the sea. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So there's this Jewish leader, the leader of the synagogue in this area. This, this is not some random guy. It shows that not all the Jewish leaders were against Jesus. At least this one saw who he was and thought maybe this guy could heal his daughter. I mean, imagine the pain of this man whose daughter was ill and dying as a father. I mean, I cannot imagine watching your child suffer from a deathly illness. And so this man begs Jesus to do something about it. And Jesus, again, in loving compassion, agrees to do it. But on the way there, he, there's another encounter. So they're headed to his house. Jesus is like, yeah, let's go do it. They're headed to his house. And of course, because Jesus came to this fallen world, there's evil and chaos all around him. Right? He's not taking the yellow brick road from chaos to chaos. There's chaos there and there and everywhere in between. This is what happens. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25. 
And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So again, Jesus faced with another tragedy. And like, and like the uh, demon-possessed man, this woman falls at the feet of Jesus. Like Jairus, who had just asked to go heal his daughter, this woman falls at the feet of Jesus. Why would they fall at his feet instead of just standing next to him? I mean, this is a sign of utter helplessness and submission and asking him to do something because these people are wits in. There's nothing more they can do. I hope you recognize this in all these situations. Human beings can do nothing else about this situation, and Jesus steps in in a special role. Fishermen couldn't do nothing about the storm. Those people couldn't do anything about the demons. All these many physicians could do nothing about her after 12 years. She's getting worse. She's broke. She didn't have Obamacare, and yet Jesus can do something about it. And, and here's just a reminder. She's seen all these physicians. She's only getting worse, spent all the money. Here's just a reminder. Man never has the last word, okay? Physicians could do nothing. She could do nothing. Her money could do nothing. Man never has the last word. And the greatest displays of faith in this passage come from the demon-possessed man and this woman who gets healed. And this dad, right, the people who receive God's mercy, even beforehand, they, they show amazing faith. And faith often is going to show itself in pleading with Jesus for help and mercy, right? Acknowledging that there are things that they can't do, that he's the only one that can do. I mean, that's how faith often shows up. If you feel like you are never pleading with Jesus, for something that you cannot do, that only he can do, then you should ask yourself whether or not you have true faith. People assume lots of things about faith. Faith is this thing in me that makes me just want to go to church on Sundays. That's not faith. Faith is this direct relationship with Jesus where you recognize you're the weak one and he's the strong one and he's supplying you, meeting your needs in ways that nobody else could. Mainly the forgiveness of sins and, and new birth. They show this great faith pleading with Jesus. I love that this dad's faith leads him not only to, to call on Jesus, but to call on Jesus on behalf of his family. Fathers, I hope we, we take notes. Let's ask Jesus to be with our kids. Right? There's nothing that I can do for my kids that's greater than what Jesus could do for my kids. Right? I want to plead with Jesus. Hey, be merciful to my kids. Save their souls. Protect them. Not only that, but we want to actually lead our kids to Jesus. Right, if my kids know Jesus, this Jesus, this powerful, authoritative Jesus, I don't know what's going to come in their life, but they'll be just fine if they know this Jesus. Dads, oh, we take note. We want our kids to be connected to Jesus. 
To those in the, in the room today who are battling different kinds of health issues, you know, we can learn from this woman's faith here. And my, my encouragement to you is to trust God, to throw yourself at his mercy, right? Allow it to remind you that, that Jesus is strong in your weakness. If faith is trusting God for who he is and trusting him to do things we cannot do, then our weakness has an incredible way of increasing our faith and strength. We get confused, and we think we're taking care of it. In weakness, there is no confusion. We know only Jesus can take care of it. And here's the thing. Jesus can heal you. So I'd encourage you to ask him, right, just like this lady did, fall at his feet, just like Jairus did, ask him to heal you and trust that he's good, right? He's, he's so good, and he's so powerful that we know when he doesn't heal us, Right? It's, it's because he has something better for us. It can't be because he doesn't love us or he's not good. We know he's good and he loves us. It can't be because he's not powerful enough to do it. We know that he's powerful enough to do it. So that it must be that there's something about our suffering and our weakness. And I say this is somebody with a physical weakness and ailment. There's something about our, our weakness that glorifies him more and is better for us. Better for his glory and better for our good. You know, real faith isn't just believing God to do stuff for you. That's not what faith is. It's not just like, hey, I want that car. I'm believing God for that car. That faith is not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. That's not faith. Faith is not just believing God to do stuff for you. Faith is believing that God is who he said he is and believing that that God will keep his promises. And that real faith includes Believing God to be the sovereign decider, even over who and how and when he heals. So that if God doesn't do for us exactly what we ask him to do, it doesn't destroy our faith because we know he's still who he said he was. Real faith strives to trust in that truth. And because our faith is in God himself. Don't lose our faith. Or we trust him. Part of what we're trusting is that he's sovereign and he's all wise. He knows stuff we don't know, and he's good. In the case of this woman, Jesus says her faith made her well. I mean, it's a strange thing to happen that she just touches his garment and then she's healed. I don't know the mechanics of how Jesus' power jumped into his garment. I don't know that. text doesn't say that. What it does say, though, is that her faith made her well. And there is sometimes that a lack of faith gets in the way of Jesus doing things. So let's trust God in all things. I hope you see that his loving character on display here once again, that after he heals her, he calls her daughter, right? Daughter, your faith has made you well. So is this great compassion. My prayer is that we would show that same kind of love and familiar compassion in one another, especially those in our church who are suffering with health issues. I can think of several people off the top of my head. Let's get to know one another and care for one another. We're the family of God here to care for one another. Let's do that. So Jesus goes along to see Jairus' daughter. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. 
And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You know, it's clear from the beginning as Jesus gets to this man's house that these other people don't have the faith that Jairus does. Everyone's weeping and wailing because she's already died. And they go to his house and Jesus says, hey, why are you weeping and wailing? Which sounds like a strange question, right in the midst of death. So Jesus is not suggesting that grieving is wrong. Any more than in the storm, he was trying to suggest that fear at dying in a storm is wrong. It's just that there's no, there's no need, there's no reason for fear or weeping if the deliverer is on the case. Jesus is here. Jesus was coming. There's no threat when the Lord is taking care of it. So he's saying, hey, why are you weeping and wailing? She's, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. He's basically saying, hey, she's not going to remain dead. She's only out for a little while. She's taking a nap. And, of course, their response is laughter. They're laughing at Jesus. What disrespect to laugh in the face of the Son of God, right? It's just clear they don't get it. They don't understand who's in front of them. But yet again, Jesus confronts this tragedy with mere words. He says, little girl, arise, and she comes back to life. Can you imagine being at a funeral somewhere mourning? And someone's like, oh, hey, get up. And they just get up out the casket, like, and he's like, get them something to eat. Can you imagine that? What a strange thing. If someone showed up at a funeral saying, hey, I'm a... no, they're not dead, they're sleeping, you might laugh too. It's an incredible miracle that Jesus does because not only can Jesus heal people from diseases that threaten to kill them, Jesus can resurrect them after they already do. Again, Jesus is the ultimate power and authority. How many stories can Mark tell us before we understand that there is nothing that doesn't have to submit to Jesus? You know, what else could he even point to? There's storms, there's mental illness and demons, there's physical illness, now there's death. I mean, what else would Jesus have to do to display his authority over all things? It's a good reminder to us, those of us who've lost loved ones recently, that Jesus is sovereign even over death. It feels like in the first few months of our church, we had a lot of deaths in families, even some more this, this past week. And it's good to know that death is not that magical part of creation that Jesus can't handle. All of life is in his hands, right? Life is part of his creation, and no one ends life without Jesus' permission. That's, that's a good reminder for us. And we may marvel at this miracle thing, man, I wish I could witness a resurrection. I wish I could experience something like that. And the good news is, if you're in Christ, you absolutely will. Jesus will resurrect you after you die. Scripture says all of us will be raised, some to judgment and some to eternal life. And if we know Jesus, death won't be the end for us. We'll all get to witness a resurrection, one much more amazing than this one. And the good thing is that if your loved ones know God, they too will be resurrected like this, and so will we. Before the miracle, Jesus says to, to them, he says, hey, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. 
we saw the woman who got healed had a good fear and trembling. He's talking about the kind of fear that's not uh, a fear and faith. That's the command to believe in Jesus that all of us are to obey. We're talking about the authority and power of Jesus, demand obedience. That is our primary act of obedience is faith in the good news of Jesus. So if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I would plead with you to trust him. Moses already talked about this gospel, that despite the fact that all of us are sinners, Jesus, who is absolutely perfect, came and paid the price for our sin. Our sin deserves judgment. Jesus took the judgment for us. Who does that? Who steps in and takes the judgment if you're innocent for other people? Guilty people try to be seen as innocent. Innocent people don't take the guilt of others, yet that's what Jesus did. Bore our sins on the cross. And he rose from the grave. The most significant resurrection of all that Jesus. And this is what's interesting is that Jesus is the Lord over death, yet he willingly submits himself to it for us. That the life giver, the one who sustains life, submits himself to death so that we won't have to die. So that we can be resurrected. I mean, don't you want to know the very one who's Lord over death? If even death can't hold you, then what can ever really threaten you? Don't you want to know this, Jesus? You can know him right now. Turn from your sins and put your faith in him. The power Jesus displays here demands obedience. what's very clear in this entire scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in Scripture, these three scenes kind of put together. All of these stories show that utter utter helplessness, followed by this encounter with the true hope himself, which is Jesus. And it is ironic that winds and waves obey Jesus, and that demons obey Jesus, and that diseases obey Jesus, and that death obey Jesus. Yet some of the people didn't, and we often don't. And and here's what I want to say. We think, of course, the winds and waves should have Jesus as their creator. It's the same thing for us. This is why disobedience is so bad is because Jesus is Lord of all. And it is unnatural and strange for us not to submit to his authority. So my prayer is that this week, when you're tempted to sin, you would not see your sin as something small. Sin is the most unnatural, strange, and ridiculous thing that we could ever do. Our creator has given us command. And the only right, the only holy, the only good thing for us to do is to obey them. There's no cosmic battle between good and evil that's a fair fight, right? Good is already won at the cross. God's authority has never been in question, and this passage displays it so clearly. I love it because it's almost like watching a highlight reel of the greatest fighter of all time. Just defeat enemy after enemy after enemy. It's incredible to watch. And the truth is, Jesus has never been in a fair fight. And since I'm on his team, that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd give us grace to respond in obedience and submission. Father, I want to pray for those who are going through difficult things in here today. Father, that you'd remind them of this passage. You'd remind them of this power throughout their week. Father, whatever trials come, they'd remember the track record of Jesus. Father, that whatever hopeless things come before them, they'd remember the power of Jesus. Whatever kind of sicknesses come upon them, they'd remember the healing power of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus. Father, allow this authority to shape our weeks to honor you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.